Hi guys, welcome to another episode of the Sensible Hippie Podcast. I'm your host, the Sensible Hippie. Today, we're embarking on a fascinating journey through ancient biblical narratives, mysteries, and prophecies that have left an indelible mark on our world. Today, we have an extraordinary guest, a true luminary in the realm of biblical mysteries. He is the best-selling author of a book you may have already heard of, The Genesis 6 Conspiracy. He's a dedicated researcher who has passionately explored the deep truths hidden within biblical tales. His work has led him to uncover fascinating connections between fairy origins, dragon bloodlines, the giants that once walked on this earth, fallen angels, and shedding light onto the coming last days. And that's only the tip of the iceberg. Our guest today is none other than Gary Wayne, also known as the Contrarian, for his fearless, unconventional insights on biblical truths. So whether you're a seasoned biblical scholar or just searching for deeper understanding, be prepared to be enlightened. So let's welcome Gary Wayne to the Sensible Hippie Podcast. Welcome, Gary. No, no problem. Uh, I, I like to do uh, new audiences, so I'm always looking forward to whether it's large, small, but just to hit an audience that may not have heard me before because, uh, you know, I want to get information out because I think the world kind of needs to be able to understand what's going on. And I think I present a pretty good way of explaining things. Maybe a little hard to accept at first, but when people start to think about it, it starts to make a lot of sense to them. It it does. So many things that you've talked about really just made me open my eyes a lot more than before. Um, I did. I never was raised in a religious mm-hmm. background at all. I, I did after I got an adult went into um, religion, but um, kind of step back now. And when you step back, you kind of see the whole picture. Yeah. I mean, you do get a better perspective from on high. So it's, yeah. uh, it gets, otherwise you sort of get lost within the trees or within the things that are going on. And you don't always get enough time to sort of think about things and you're so busy, you just sort of keep sort of moving on. So for me, it was um, a little bit different. I, I grew up in a, a Christian uh, household and in a church, but as I got into to be a teenager, I kind of left that whole ideology, went with the peer groups and the teachings in the schools and the brainwashing that goes on. And then uh, once I got challenged to uh, maybe have a look at my views, uh, I won't go through the whole story, but you know, that was a lot of cognizant dissonance on many different occasions is, am I really ready to go down this rabbit hole? And who's going to believe me? Even if it was true, who would believe me? So I had to deal with a lot of that on the way back because being a Christian doesn't necessarily, as as we're aware of, doesn't necessarily uh, imply that people are aware of everything that's in the Bible and the whole context of the Bible in terms of why we're here, where we were, and where we're going. So, and it's not taught in the churches. So unless people are seeking those answers out themselves because they're not happy with the unanswered questions, 
then uh, they tend to skip over it and just sort of keep saying, oh, well, that's not important. True. And you started this journey like 30 years ago? Yeah, more than that, more like 40 years now. <laughs> I mean, so yeah, about 1980 or 1981. So that's when um, I was challenged to read, you know, we were drinking on a Friday night, having beers. I'm like 20 or 21 years old. And I was challenged to read a book if I had the courage. And uh, I'm thinking, I have no idea what kind of book it was. And because then they've been talking a few things about a false prophet and antichrist and i thought well this is kind of interesting because there was antichrist movies out there and i thought okay you know this is not that unusual but uh, we can talk about that that's fine we're having beers and then they gave me the challenge they said if you got enough courage to read this book by hal Lindsay. it was called the late great planet earth and it was a book on prophecy so i read it and he was way ahead of his time on prophecy really? uh yeah and uh wrote many books um and so it scared the socks off of me and i had to start to reconcile that because if it was true and if this was indeed and as he, he called it in one of his books the terminal generation then i needed to know a little bit more about this because it has obviously an impact and but you know i had no idea where to start so i mean you just start right from the beginning first thing you do is you have to read the whole bible and uh you know that was a good thing to do because i'd never run it read it from front to back we only did verses and churches and things and so i found the old testament really difficult um and you know i had to switch to a modern translation because the kgv was making my mind go to mush after about a page <laughs> and then i you know I, I used other versions and the KGV afterwards, but to sort of be able to read it and have it make some sense to me. And, but, you know, by the time I got to the four gospels, it was, this is not normal. This is preternatural. The words are uh, not from a human. And so I started to pay a little bit more attention. And then I decided I have to go back and I have to log all the narratives of prophecy because you know, reading it, the whole book had, it did not allow me to find out whether or not Hal was in context, manipulating scripture, living out inconvenient scripture or anything like that. So, you know, I get out a highlighter and I got to start all over because I ran out of colors pretty darn fast. There's way more <laughs> prophecy in the Bible than what one thinks. And uh, so then I had to learn about, you know, setting up files and it was all done manually at that time. So I just hand wrote the verses down what they were about, put them in files, had to create more files because there's again, way it was just, <laughs> I was just blown away as how many prophecy trails there are. And in that process, as you're going back and restarting and reading and researching, you know, you get to Genesis six pretty quickly, no matter how you come about in that sort of process. And it's like, I don't want to have anything to do with that. Whatever that is, that's not what I'm here for. I don't, giants, what the heck is that all about? So anyways, I, I kind of left it for a while. And then as I was going back to go through to make sure that I was getting everything, I thought, you know what? I'm going to go through it anyways. I might as well log everything about giants. And there was way more passages than I thought. And even at that time, there was even more than I didn't even realize we're talking about giants and demons and angels and fallen angels and how that seemed to sort of come together to a certain degree in the end time. So that's how I got into it. And I didn't start 
thinking about writing a book until about 1995, uh, maybe 94, really thinking. But so I thought, finally, you know, I'll write a short book <laughs> and I'll just I'll connect. Sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I thought I'll connect Genesis six with Revelation and I'll see whether I can tell the story and whether or not it might be worthy enough to publish when would people buy it and then would they would they like it or you know what would the response be so i did that i did that rather quickly 10 chapters is basically what i did and uh, then i realized that i knew there were connections to other cultures and i was a history buff and a mythology buff before so I knew they were talking about the same events in prehistory. Wow. And as I was going to learn the same things about through history and then into end time prophecy. So I thought, well, I'll layer that in because I think Christians might want to know that perhaps there's a polytheist version from a polytheist lens that talks about the same events that actually by doing so gives credibility to the Bible's version because it's stated over and over and over and as as i did further research it's you know the flood story and prehistory the, these things it's on all continents all over the world and they're telling the same story just from a different sort of biases and even in the hawaiian islands where um you live there's a there's a version of the uh of the flood story and uh, and I actually have a, a memento on it, hang it on my wall somewhere where it's a Hawaiian uh, Noah and family. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. So, <laughs> uh, so, anyways, yeah, that's sort of how I got into the larger sort of book because then I realized I need to learn a little, little bit more about the religions, more about the culture to get the proper context. And then that led me to how the secret societies were created through the mystical religions to develop the knowledge cult and uh once i got into that rabbit hole i was down there for like eight or eight or ten years and you could stay down there forever there's just so much on it uh, that's out there if you if you really get into you know the research of looking for it but i finally said you know i got to come back up because i have to sort of make sense of this and then i started piecing it all together and in between these chapters all the way through and then looking for additional sources to back up what i was maybe only had one source on and stuff like that so yeah so started at say 1995 ish or so and uh, was really starting to do the writing by about 96 97 and uh and didn't publish till about 2015 but i was had it ready a couple of years before but you learn very quickly it's one thing to write a book it's another thing to get published <laughs> I bet. yeah that must have been hard too because i don't know if people are thinking about this kind of stuff you kind of brought it a lot of it out well as it turns out and i wasn't all that was i wasn't looking for christian verification from other researchers um so i wanted to learn all about prophecy myself and then when i got into the history i took the same sort of approach so i wasn't sure how much was out there what i did learn though is, is even though there was this community the sort of like the fringe community in christianity that was saying hey you know we're actually do look at the literal understanding and therefore there has to be these giants and they had a big impact it was very superficial i thought and didn't really tell the whole story or how it interconnected with our history and our future so i think that's what made my book so unique 
Um, and I think it's, and, you know, and I said I would never write a sequel to the to the yeah, Genesis. Why would you say that? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm actually 300 pages into another book when I finally get convinced that, you know, the thirst amongst Christians is so strong. And they get no yeah. answers from the churches. And they, if you ask the questions, they say, don't ask the questions. If you continue to ask the questions, they say, you should leave. <laughs> and so the, I decided I should listen to my audience. And it, they want to know more about what's in the, in, um, in the Bible about giants and about the angelic order, about the hybrid giants. Yeah. And, how does that connect in with end time prophecy? Because they, they know, they don't know how much it does, but they know there's, there's terms that are used in prophecy that always go back to prehistory. And it kind of always surprised me once I got out there that people didn't really seem to understand what I thought was a pretty basic concept when I first sort of read the Bible is that the creation of the Adamites was the resolution to the angelic rebellion. And that we're going to be interconnected with that rebellion all throughout our history until that's resolved in the end time. And, and yet people were kind of saying, yeah, we know about angels, but there's other stuff. I don't know what you're talking about. And, exactly. uh, and it's been hidden from us. And it's that hidden mm -hmm. history that we need to understand. So when I wrote the second book, and I won't talk too much about that at this point, see where it goes with it. But so the only thing I guaranteed about the second book, it would be go, it would go deeper into the Bible than anybody else does. And it would do research nobody else has done or has wow. presented in a logical way, and that it would be shorter. So I think I've <laughs> I think I've done that. It's only 84 chapters. Wow. <laughs> but what it does is it connects prehistory to end time prophecy by going through the prehistory giving you the angelic order in terms of the hierarchy and the fallen gives you all the terms all the giant nations all the hybrid nations goes through all of the giant wars and by identifying those key things of prehistory it helps to define the terminology that's used in end time prophecy to give you a better meaning and then i what i also do is because i, I learned that there's so many different approaches to prophecy out there that all seems to be all seem to be working from a preconceived conclusion and then try and slot everything in and what doesn't they just uh, ignore um pretend it's not there and you only get into conflicts when you have a preconceived conclusion so i i i talk about my approach to prophecy in the preface and then i'll show that in the uh the last parts the last couple sections of the book to show you that there is a chronology and there's a template that you can use and once I got onto that template in my prophecy research, it was, I didn't have a problem with conflicts anymore. Everything just sort of fit. And there was a number, a period of time where I kept saying, okay, I missed this. And I missed this. Where does it fit? And it was like, oh, it's like a jigsaw puzzle. It goes right there. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I wonder if that's God kind of allowing you to see this. You know what I mean? Like towards the end there, he. Yeah, I don't want to overplay my role in interaction yeah. with, with God in any sort of manner because I'm not a prophet. Right. And I don't get visions and stuff like right. that. But I, I I certainly do believe that if I have any 
special or good understanding of the Bible and prophecy and scripture in general, then it's because I'm permitted to have that. That's a gift exactly. that's given to me. Yeah. And uh, as difficult as it is, because it makes you a contrarian within the community <laughs> and you're always challenging the status quo. And uh, even if you can present all the evidence that opposes the standard dogma, a lot of people still won't be convinced. And again, you have to accept that. And all you, all you can do is sort of plant seeds. So, yep. you, know, you know, what I say is I'm not here to change your view on the Bible. I'm not here to change your view on eschatology, but mm -hmm. if you want to have things start make sense, I'll provide some information that maybe is going to be helpful to you in that. And again, specifically with prophecy, if you're tired of having somebody say you can't use that verse or they reimagine it not to be relative or they want to change what Jesus said or whatever the excuse they want to use, if you're tired of that as the comeback when you ask a specific question on a specific eschatology, es eschatology approach, then maybe it's simpler than what they're trying to do. And uh, uh, so I provide that in the book and we can talk about that in the, in the interview if you want, but wherever you want to go with the show is uh, whatever your audience is looking for or whatever you would like to have answered. That's what I'm here for. I like to hear about the, um, the dragon line, the end time, the elf line. I, and I, I know you've talked about that a lot. It's such an important concept to understand the bloodlines and the royales. And so much so that even though I talk about it in the first book, I talk about it through what the Bible will have to say on that in the second book. And so it's really? yeah, so it starts it's to exciting. connect those dots and and even more ways than what's in in the other book. Because a lot of times I'm just using what the other side says, right? Because I'm letting them speak for themselves. But yeah, the Bible tells us about a lot of this. So wow. Yeah, so for the audience who may not be aware of what we're talking about is in the uh, polytheist royales, and let me talk about the royales first. This In the first book, I call them Rex Deus, or Rex Deus, depending on how you want to pronounce that. That's the kings of God, and they believe they have the divine right to rule. And so they are the royales and the royal bloodlines, but it's larger than that. It's the complete elite. It's the nobility elite because they populated the first two classes, which were of the four classes, which is standard uh, four classes around the world everywhere. And so they would populate the kings, they would populate the governments, they would populate the armies, they would populate with uh, the extended family, all of the hmm. priests. And they would take, you know, own the education only for the elite, of course. Yeah. And also the army. So they would and, and all of the large business and they would leave a small class to like blacksmiths and bakers, <laughs> just more for the service things that they didn't want to be in would, and where there wasn't any real money. And it's almost like a slave class, but it's a elevated slave class. And then there's the poor and the slaves. And that's where the humans, the Adamites were was in the slave working class and maybe a few might be in the small business enterprise class and so the royales um if you look at that word um it means roy is in old french for king 
and it goes back to Regal, Rule, Rogal, all the way back into uh, as Rugal into uh, Indo-Aryan, which was the language of the giants. And L, uh, Al, it's a transliteration of El, which is the Hebrew word for a god or an angel. So when you see the the god Baal, that means um, Lord God. And that's one of the ways the secret societies say that Baal is actually the God of the Bible. That is, and that's why you, you have Lord God being used in the King James Version as one of their markers um, in terms of them doing the translation, which is, again, another controversial issue. And I have documents on that. If people want to get a hold of me, I'll send you a little bit of document on that or some yeah. of the changes that they made. I can provide lots of information on that because I take everything back to the Hebrew and Greek. So I want to have a complete wow. understanding. Yeah. Uh, and I got there over time. I mean, you just don't go to the Hebrew and Greek and start to understand the Bible. It takes a <laughs> while to, to get in a position to sort of do that. So if we understand that that is the nobility class and that because of the sort of giant nature, they were able to usurp that both before and after the flood. They were larger, more powerful, and uh, certainly before the flood, they could multiply in significant numbers. They created, through their dynastic bloodlines, uh, allegories. And for the patriarchal bloodline, they would use essentially dragon, but sometimes it's raven. Uh, oh. And yeah. Okay. So now that's. That. Yeah, so that's why you have dragons and ravens and things sort of kind of similar, and people don't really know why. Mm -hmm. um, and you can also look at that as an allegory for one of the of two kinds of the watchers from a male perspective. And so seraphim are dragons, serpent face, six wing angels, part of the watcher group okay. who created most of the giants. Mm -hmm. And then the cherubim have four faces. Ooh. Yeah, they have a face of an ox or a bull. They have a face of a uh, lion. They have the face of an eagle and a face of a man. And so the eagle, as in the Anunnaki reliefs, where you see these winged eagle-faced gods, you have the same reliefs with the same depiction, only they have a human head. And they would take one face when they turn themselves into a physical form. So that's part of the sort of secondary allegory of understanding two kinds of watcher, two kinds of giants created from two kinds of watchers, and they would look similar like them. So the extension of that is, is that if these eagle-faced angels created giants, they would look like them, just as you have the serpentine look with the seraphim associated with the first kings and the religions and the gods, right? So you actually get these bird-faced giants in a lot of cultures around the world, like yeah. the uh, Vu with the Zabalba and the Kamazots. Yeah. And, Mayans, and, too. Yeah. And in the Tengu in Southeast Asia. Yeah. And that's the offspring of the Cherubim. So when you get into like the linemen like men of Gad uh, and the Mo linemen of Moab or Arioch of the War of Giants, that all goes back to sort of the lion face and you yeah. have these lion mercenaries all throughout history. So, but I digress. So anyways, <laughs> the matriarchal bloodline, because we could go down rabbit holes forever. So I'll try and get back to the question. <laughs> So the matriarchal allegory is a fairy or an owl, owl being uh -huh. secondary. And again, okay. that starts to bring out 
much of the imagery that's in the occult, right? Because these are occult allegories for their um, demigod offspring of the you know celestial mafia or the godfathers that originally created them who have the divine right to rule granted to them by their godfathers. And so the matriarchal line is very, very important um, with the mother goddess sort of aspect because polytheism is sort of dualistic. So as the visible representatives of the invisible ones, um, they would be representing male and female in the dualistic polytheist religions. So understanding that when they're talking about fairy tales and we're talking about the fairy bloodline, mm -hmm. This is this is a key indicator that they're telling talking about their history, for example. Huh. I never thought of it like that. Yeah. Okay. So and yeah. if you look at, let's say, um, we'll use something that most people might be familiar with. So you have uh the Holy Grail, and again, a big part of the occult as well, the Holy Grail tales, and mm. King Arthur and Guinevere. So King Arthur is son of Uther Pendragon. Oh, okay. And he That's becomes great. the head dragon, pen dragon, right? And he's the Tuatha okay. de Danan of the fairy folk giants and would be essentially fair-skinned and red-haired from that version with hazel eyes. And Guinevere is a fairy queen or a godmother and of the matriarchal bloodline out of uh, Ireland as well as Tuatha de Danan. And actually, you know, essentially translates as a banshee or a, a, a spirit like a Lilith or a queen of heaven. And so just within the King Arthur tale, you have those bloodlines and wow. representing those kinds of, of bloodlines going forward. And that they're there to bring in a new Atlantis. Really? Yeah. <laughs> And they have Knights of that. the Round Table, which is like the, the Ring Lord Table, and mm -hmm. the, the Ten Kings of the Atlantean Empire before the Flood. And they're trying to bring in the new Atlantis after the Flood. Really? Yeah. And so all the characters that are involved there, you know, the Knights aren't Knights. They're all kings of mm -hmm. other countries. <laughs> and, <Okay. laughs> and they have bloodlines, and they're part of this, this alliance. And so... Anywhere you start to look in the fairy tale understanding, if you understand that a fairy queen or a fairy godmother is the matriarchal bloodline. And, you know, you're, yeah. So if you move over even to some more of the modern versions, like you get like uh, the vampire tales, mm -hmm. just as Lilith is connected with vampires and the mm -hmm. owl sort of imagery from the female as a night witch or an opier. Yeah. And yeah, and and Dracula is mm -hmm. uh, means son of a dragon. A is the really? suffix for a son. Yes, and it's rooted in the Greek word draconta for dragon, which means a watcher. What? And now you have this dragon imagery, which is that mm -hmm. patriarchal bloodline of the seraphim on the male side, and that. The character that Dracula is based on is a noble Celt, a noble Tuatha de Danan, a Scythian. They're all part of the same groups of people. And he has red hair, hazel eyes, mm -hmm. pale skin, has an aversion to light, was initiated mm -hmm. in the mystery school of Solomon, 
and he takes his bloodline through his genealogies back to the uh, the Agrithi, uh tribe produced by Hercules, uh, son of Zeus and alchemy. And King Charles, connected. <laughs> yeah, King Charles is on record okay. saying part of his bloodline and genealogy and heraldry goes back to Vlad the Impaler, who the Dracula character was based on. <laughs> really? Isn't Bush supposed to be connected to? Um, yeah, but more to the Plantagenet. Oh. Um, and most of the presidents will connect their bloodlines back to the Plantagenet. The Plantagenet is the junior offshoot family through marriage of the Anjou. Oh. Oh, wow. Is there any Asian bloodlines connected to this as well? there is they have their own they have their groupings. own yeah oh, so really? <laughs> it's a it's an eastern group and the chinese have uh secret societies that parallel secret societies in the west okay really yes okay. and so in the chinese tradition you have the dragon creator gods these are like seraphim mm. yes they're right. very popular yeah. to dragons over there yes they are and they were the gods and just as in with the Kishimaya, um, they have their main gods as feathered serpents or plume serpents. These are the seraphim again. It's a standard all around the world. And just as all the demigods come from the watchers. So in the Chinese tradition, you have a tradition before the flood and then again after the flood. So again, same sort of scenario. And both before and after the flood, the... Shaw people, XIA, and all of the dynasties that come are produced from the, as the offspring of these dragon creator gods. And yeah, and again, I have a great document on this that walks people through it if they want it. They just need to get a hold of me through my website, Genesis 6 Conspiracy, number 6 conspiracy.com. And uh, until the time of the communists, that bloodline ruled, and they started most of with branch um setting up new dynasties branch dynasties all the kingships through southeast asia including the japanese bloodline and they have their own separate bloodline really uh, that separate they take from back. the chinese yeah but it it descends out of that but they don't really recognize much beyond a certain point so they don't have that longer history that sort of attaches mm -hmm. to it Again, I have a document on that if people want. Yeah, I would like that. My my family, my mom's side is from Japan. Yeah. So you know, I'm interested in that. And I know they kind of mesh in with the Chinese it's somehow. Very, yeah, as, as a branch off. So, And so today you have still the Yamamoto bloodline in place in Japan, uh, which is distinct and separate from the Chinese bloodline. But with uh, President Xi, XI, last name uh that's the western branch of the old shaw dynasty xia and he's back in power so you have that other bloodline back in and they have all of these secret societies that were also part of the communist movement and were also wow. you know dominated by the lee family which is the other common name of the shaw bloodline uh in the various uh spellings and so yeah it's the same structure everywhere around the world and it's just and it's not a coincidence yeah it's not a coincidence that is so strange how that is all connected like that yeah 
Yeah. And it's important to understand. Yeah. So they all have their own story or their own, um, I guess they all want to be that part of that end time leader. Yeah. At I, the end. I'm not sure whether you or, or people in your audience are aware of what I thought was a pretty good series of movies and television shows back in the 80s and the 90s. That shows you how old I am. But it's called Highlander. Uh, I vaguely and, remember that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's about these warriors who are, are immortal and they chop each other's head off. <laughs> just as you do with giants. Yeah. 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 What? And that by doing that, they they're able to take all of their energy and and in the it's it's called a quickening in there just as a quickening is a as sort of a transformation of the spirit just as the king james version bible calls the resurrection of jesus as a quickening of the spirit so that's how they're sort of tying that sort of term because they like to counterfeit everything that's in the bible and so um there can only be one in that movie in that series at the end that's going to rule the world and so that's the ultimate sort of antichrist figure so now if you look at that with all of these different bloodlines around the world mm -hmm. they're working towards the same goal mm -hmm. but only one family can be antichrist yeah so there's going to be rivalries as as that mm -hmm. sort of happens and so so you asked you asked a question about the beheading taking of the head mm -hmm. so You've got giants that are before the flood and you have giants that are after the flood. And one presumes some of the traits on both sides were similar because of the similar type of creation, but the giants after the flood seem to be smaller and not as mm. gifted. And, and so they're known more or less biblically as the Raphaim. Okay. As opposed to the Nephilim. Mm. And uh, Nephilim's only used three times <laughs> Raphaim, all after the flood, is used 25 times. And they're actually shown as a tribe in Genesis 14 and Genesis 15. And it's translated as giant when you see it, except for twice in Genesis 14 and 15 as the tribe of the Raphaim. And so the root word is 7495 in the lexicon, which means to heal or a doctor or a physician or a medicine. 7496, same spelling, sourced in 7495 means a disembodied spirit, a shay, a shed, demon, evil spirit. And 7497 is the word for giant and wow. also sourced in 7495 as the source. Now in the Ugaritic text, you have the, in original Semitic, it's RPM, the without the vowels and the source word for Raphaim in Hebrew, or Rapha as it's in singular. And they're called the Rapiu and the Rapiyum uh, in transliterations. And these are giant demigod dynastic kings, part of the assembly of Datanu at Mount Hermon under the Baalim gods after the flood. And they're created by Baal and Ashtaroth um, to, uh, you know, restart the giants after the flood. Really? And they have the ability to heal not only themselves, but others. And you see that sort of imagery in bloodline kings. Let's say like the Merovingian kings were known to be fisher kings, another allegory for the same thing. And they could heal, heal themselves and heal others. And... Uh, 
just so that people see how these these things sort of work downstream and into into those royal bloodlines without going too deep on any one subject because i'll bore people with the details <laughs> no. well, hopefully not but i don't want to no. get people lost and we forget about what we're talking about so in the execration texts of ancient egypt they talk about these giants and that they had this ability to repair themselves and that the the worst death that you could have is to have your head chopped off and that would generally tend to mean to them that they would have to maybe wander the earth earth as disembodied spirits or even worse go to the abyss prison as opposed to finding their way to hades or sheol and where their heaven and their gods are in their belief system and the reason you, the only way you can kill them by chopping off their head is because they have that ability to repair things so if you cut off a hand they could grow back another hand Wow. And so okay. that strike to the neck cuts off the brain and the heart. Mm -hmm. So suddenly and quickly, there's no ability to repair yourself. So the two schools of thought are one is they could do that themselves, or they had a technology and some speculate through the sarcophagus and sarcophagi to do that. Um, so whichever way they were known that they uh, had that ability to heal themselves. And so that's why you have let's say in the story that people would be most aware of in the bible with uh, goliath who's mm -hmm. a, a giant a, a, a raphaim um that when david takes five smooth stones a he's not thinking he's going to miss he's probably gonna have to kill the five kings of the pentapolis of the philistines because they're all giants and so he takes five stones and he he drops goliath with the first one which goes right through the temple which you would think probably should have killed him if he was a normal being but david doesn't leave it at that he goes and he takes the head that's why and, yeah because he wants to make sure that that he's mm -hmm. dead and mm -hmm. you uh then he actually uh, he takes the head over to jerusalem and he shows this to the jebusites as a sign of what's going to happen to them because he's already been anointed by god to become when he grows up and after saul dies the king and in the new book i i i talk about this episode and that this is likely where the name uh, the hill of golgotha that jesus was crucified outside the walls of jerusalem got the name and it means the hill of the skull really yeah oh, pretty cool <laughs> pretty cool yeah so. yeah and then another interesting thing to show you how these bloodline kings looked on um the power of people of that bloodline is is in the time of jesus uh and king uh herod the tetrarch as opposed to king herod because king herod had died and his offspring is, are now taking over and in the John okay. the Baptist story, mm -hmm. he, beheaded has, him. he beheaded him. Mm -hmm. And then when he hears about Jesus doing the miracles in uh, the Galilee region, he thinks that that is the risen John the Baptist. Right. That's right. 
because he was able to repair himself somehow, even though he (laughs) took his head and he's an absolute fear. Like how powerful is this guy that he could actually come back from the dead? And so anyways, there's more biblical accounts about taking the heads, but it's a key part of the occult and it's a key part of Mm. interesting details, particularly in the wars of the giants uh, in the Bible. Yeah, and I I know they still do that today. Um, they behead people. Is, is yeah. that for the same reason? Just to yeah. be sure. Yeah, and with the mm-hmm. vampires, they do be the beheading and a stake through the heart. They want to be yeah. fully sure. <laughs> so. Yeah, that's true. So, what um what Bible do you use, or which which Bible do you think is most accurate? Because the translation is not quite accurate. Yeah, it, it, it's not going to change the meaning no matter which one you use. Okay. Uh, but there are certain details that mm-hmm. you might walk away with a little bit different meaning. So um, yeah, I started with NIV, also have NASB. Uh, I have a King Jerusalem Bible. I do the King James. I have an Access and a few other ones. And as I was sort of wanting to go deeper into the research, and in the first book, I used the NIV Bible because that's what I came back to, to Christ with. So... Um, but I wanted to get different translations because I understood the KGV, which I was struggling to read, seemed to use different words and mean a little bit different in some of the passages in the NIV. So that's why I wanted to use other translations to get sort of a triangulation or a better understanding of how it was translated out of Hebrew or to Greek. So that'll get you very you know quite far along the way but if you really want to be nerdy and you really want to know the full context of the meanings and allow you you and will allow you to open up more doors i would recommend that people get either an interlinary uh, bible online or a kgv and i i like to use the kgv because i've got all the other sort of translations and i want i want the oldest language of the kgv Mm. when i'm doing research and the understanding of how the, of those older words that they use versus the modern language as it goes back to the original Greek and Hebrew. And what's interesting in the meanings of Greek and Hebrew words is that they have multiple meanings. Some of them are nuanced and similar, but some of them are quite different. So you have to be a little bit careful when you're doing it that the translation that you're looking at what you're testing for and what you would like to know if you if you don't like the translation is can i use this meaning is does it fit with the meaning of the sentence does it fit with the chapter that it's in and does it not contradict any other passage in the bible if you select a different meaning and that's a that's a high standard but that's if you want to do it properly so you don't sort of mislead yourselves because a lot of people they pick Mm -hmm. The meaning they want yeah <laughs> in a specific sentence but it doesn't make sense with the rest of the narrative true i think you mentioned before about even um babble something simple like that people i think you said hebrew it's translated as confusion of language yeah but in archaic archaic Acadian. And Acadian. Acadian, which was art which is an archaic language um and then their account of the uh, tower of babel and, and people may not 
be aware of that Babel account is has an Aztec accounting of it. Really? I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah, and a few other uh, ones in Central America. Uh, it has a Sumerian version, has an Akkadian version. It has several other languages. But in the Akkadian one, um, what I found was interesting is that they look at that word Babel, not meaning confusion of languages, and it's talking about this in terms of this this same ziggurat that's being built, that it means Bab, as in a portal or a gateway, and uh, E-L, not as uh, we would, would be B-A-B-E-L, although we see it transliterated, that would be B-A-B-I-L-U, which is the I-L-U is a transliteration of E-L, just as A-L is just a Mesopotamian, Mesopotamian translation. So it means, in their language, a gateway of the gods, or a stargate, or a portal, or however you want to read that, maybe a wormhole. But that would indicate that there was a significant technology. Yeah that was going on at babel and it starts to make some sense it does if you look at the understanding that a ziggurat a tower and a pyramid were essentially said to be the same type of structure with the same purposes in antiquity and that uh, it had a technology that would go with it and it would be built on particular energy lines or ley lines as it's known in the occult today so that it could work with this technology that they're putting into it. So in the other stories, not necessarily written in the Bible about the Babel account, we get more detail on how hubris Nimrod was that he would actually climb the ziggurat and we understand that he's a rebel and he rebels against God. But now we get some of the hubris antichrist type things that he will say that he is threatening the God of the Bible that if he were to bring on another flood or another apocalypse, he would go into heaven and kill him. <laughs> and that's why he was building this tower. Well, that doesn't make any sense. You can't build right. mud bricks high yeah. enough or strong enough to even get out of the firmament, let alone <laughs> into another dimension where heaven is. And so it perhaps implies that he was going to need a technology to storm heaven. Um, and so the other possibility is, is that he is going to institute what I call Enochian mysticism at Babel, which mm -hmm. is the root word for Babylon of the end time. Oh, really? Yeah. Just as he had universal sway over all the Noahites at that time, Babylon will rule over the whole world as that mystical religion, which is the religion of the Nephilim and Enoch, son of Cain, who creates it before the flood. And Hermes finds this knowledge buried under the pyramid of uh, and takes it to Nimrod in the Gnostic and the uh, Masonic uh, tradition of their polychronicon oh, really yeah and uh, with okay. the knowledge they have the knowledge to start building the city and building the tower and they initiate people into uh, the mysteries there and create a, you know a thousand masons to do this and he writes the first constitution for the post-diluvian or after the flood masonic society He's the first really? grandmaster. He is recognized as the first grandmaster after the flood. 
And of course, Enoch, son of Cain, and there's two Enochs in the Bible, right. one son of Cain, one son of Jared on the Seth line. Enoch is recognized as a great patriarch and founder of the secret societies, along with some of his descendants like Tubal, Cain, Nama, Jubel, and Jabal, who are, so you sort of get through the seven sacred sciences that they're developing some of those sciences from the biblical accounting of them. So they're applying this knowledge. And so if yeah. it's that knowledge that was before the flood that we're just catching up to today, that yeah. is angelic technology. It's incredible. The, the illicit knowledge provided by the fallen angels in the book of Enoch and in all polytheist cultures around the world, um, that this had the ability to go interdimensional. And also, because some of the giants, or, or, or I mean, because the angels who produced the giants before the flood were taken to the abyss prison. Okay. For their crimes, uh, the pit prison, as as and they'll come out in the end time in Revelation right. nine. Yeah, and that even the post-Diluvian offspring gods like Baal, and Baal is the son of El, just as Zeus is the son of Kronos, both the, the, all the parent gods rule before the flood in polytheism, and then gods like Enlil and Anki are offspring gods, son of Anu in this case, or Osiris, or Baal, or Zeus, and their pantheons rule after the flood. They all create giants after the flood again. And that if they did that and did the same crimes, they disappear as well. And they no longer walk amongst us. And for the same crimes, they would have gone to the abyss prison as, as well. Oh, interesting. So roll that into now Nimrod's thinking. If he has this technology to go interdimensionally, he may go into another dimension to get the pit prison. So the pit prison or the abyss prison, as some people call it, is located in Sheol or Hades, but in a separate place in there. And Sheol and Hades is also the location of the polytheist gods or their heaven. But it occupies the inner earth, but in a different dimension. So you have to have a portal to, to get there. Yeah. So he would need that to do that. Now let's roll wow. forward what happens in the end time. And we just talked about Nimrod as an archetypical antichrist figure. So in Daniel 8.10, at the midpoint of the last seven years, he actually goes into heaven and he throws okay. down some of the starry host and tramples on them. Some of the angels loyal to God. And that's at the same time as the war in heaven in Revelation 12, where Satan and all his armies and Antichrist has just come to power are going to storm heaven and Michael and his angels are going to fight back and they're going to throw them down to the earth and keep them there for the last three and a half years. Now, one thing also happens just before Antichrist comes to power. Um, and as he's ascending to power is the pit prison in Revelation 9 is open where all of the fallen angels and all of the terrible ones of the Nephilim and the Raphaim who some beheaded and some for just the crimes <laughs> that they did um, were, were are going to come out at the same time. Really? So again, is it God sending one of his angels to open that up? Or is that 
a fallen angel that's going to open that up oh. or is it antichrist going to use that up but it's angelic technology that's going to be able to open it up because we get the allegory of it's a key but you got to know it's more complicated than that yeah. it's more technical <laughs> than that so that's really crazy so you think that there possibly could have been actual zeus you know gods like that yeah. at one time here on earth and yes. and they're not here no more because they are actually in the abyss i never thought about that yeah now not all oh. the fallen angels went to the yeah. abyss only the ones who and that, there's a word in hebrew called uh saba and it's translated as host and it means an army so there's an army of angels on god's side and there's an army of angels that rebelled and they have rank and mm -hmm. order so if mm -hmm. one were to go you know, be sent to the abyss prison, then somebody would move up. And that's all that happens with the offspring okay. gods to take over for the parent gods, because you can't kill an, an immortal. <laughs> it's, True. It doesn't make sense with the definition. Yeah. It's, it's an oxymoron. Um, and and so in polytheism, the mythos is, is that the offspring gods killed the parent gods to take over on the regime, but that can't happen because they're immortal. Mm -hmm. But, uh, and they're in, biblically, they're reserved for the lake of fire uh, to burn yeah. there forever in, in, you know, after the end time. And so uh, if the Baalim gods, for example, that created the Raphim afterwards, or the Olympic gods that created gods like Hercules or demigods like Hercules and Perseus after the flood, mm -hmm. then they would go to the prison as well. And other gods would move up. Now, something happens later, either the rest of the angels are afraid to all go to the abyss prison or uh, God puts in some more restrictions to make sure they don't continue this creation of giants again. Mm -hmm. And it's not that they can't, it's just the consequences for doing it. But I do expect as we get closer to the end time that we might anticipate that they may create some more. Ooh, and come out and walk upon the earth again? Yes. Oh. How big are these giants? Well, uh, as we said earlier, the uh, ones before the flood would be larger than the post-Diluvian giants. So the reliefs, you have to be careful whether or not they're showing giants and or gods. So you got sort of two different sizes of giants sort of before the flood. One is going to show the giant gods and the other one's going to show giant offspring and they're smaller. Now, in the book of Enoch, in the Aramaic version, it says they were 300 cubits, and a cubit uh, would be at least 18 inches, which would make them 450 feet, if that was accurate. The older surviving <laughs> translation, I don't think they were that big, though. The older <laughs> translation, they used the word L's, and I think in the Aramaic, which is a language that is more popular in the time of about 700 BC and then when uh, Israel is or southern kingdom of Judah is in exile in Babylon uh, and they start talking the Aramaic language um, because that was like Greek of the time or Roman of the time it was the uh, language of the world the international language because Babylon had was the was the world empire at that time so that word is L 300 L's and we don't have a definition as to how big an L was. So okay. the thought is, is that in the Aramaic tradition is they, and they thought it might be a cubit, but they didn't really know. 
because that was like thousands of years before <laughs> and okay. uh, there wasn't an understanding that was passed down to how tall that would be so i have two different words i think it's the older version of the word as opposed to the latter version so we'll throw that one out so what we can do is we can go <laughs> to post the luvian accounts so the most recent account and believe me there are giants in this size all the way down through the roman period and even up to a couple hundred years ago there's accounts of some of these similar sizes or close to that size and okay. in new and in newspaper stories uh, and i have a link if people want to get a hold of it, it it's a spreadsheet that actually you click on it it'll give you the description of the finding in north america and then you can go over to the newspaper story to see the story when it was written between 1850 to 1950 or the discoveries there are going to be a lot that are in this range that I'm talking about. There's going to be some that are a little bit smaller as well. So Goliath, who we talked about earlier, mm -hmm. and his uh, four other brothers were the son of one giant. Thought to be his name was Rapha, or as Josephus says, Araf. And in the Bible, he is talked about as being six cubits in a span. Now, Josephus says you measure the giants on a royal cubit because they were royals, mm. as opposed to a common cubit. Okay. And so if he was six cubits in a span, that would make him 11 feet, three inches tall. Wow. Now, even if it was an 18 inch one, he would be, you know, eight feet, nine inches tall. So, I mean it's still very very large yes another reference we get in the bible is og's king og's bed king of the amorites and the last of the raphaim as you take giant back to hebrew his bed was made of iron because it couldn't hold his weight so he his bed was nine cubits long and four cubits wide so as the king of edre and ashtaroth that would make the bed 16 feet long and seven feet <laughs> wide so for him to fit into it he's going to be a little bit shorter than that so he's going to be somewhere between 12 to say 14 and a half feet tall and he's going to be four to five feet wide now they put this bed on 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 display in rabba in amman for uh, the israelites to remember that they just weren't really? fighting taller people there and that it was a reminder and that the height wow. width ratio was two to one so wow. they're yeah so they were wider and stockier than humans humans are like a three to one width ratio okay. and so you get this word stout that's used and words that mean stout in the old testament in the king james version that's describing these giants because stout is in muscular not as in fatty but in wide, <laughs> right, strong, okay. muscular. Mm. Yeah. And so now we're starting, I mean, we're talking about beings that are more than twice the height and, um, you know, at least 50% wider. Yeah. Bulked with muscle. Yeah. Uh, and they look differently. They have elongated skulls, right? <laughs> Do they really? Oh. Yes. And uh, they're sutureless so you, and they're large skulls. Yeah. And they have high cheekbones and these large wraparound eyes that would glow. Uh, and just as in the Greek mythology, their voices would bellow like Atlas and it would just vibrate. And they were terrifying to look upon. Now, Gilgamesh yeah. is a dark haired giant and maybe a little bit different. And from the Sumerian region, even though there's accounts 
of Gilgamesh in the Ugaritic texts, which are identical, which means they were communicating even at that time. And in all of the accounts, he is 11 cubits tall, and he is four cubits wide. Wow. And yeah, so... So he was a giant too. Yes, and he's king of Uruk, son of Lugalbanda, and a mother goddess, Nin, and he's six generation after the flood. So it's not the wow. Gilgamesh that's in the Enoch Book of Giants. That's an antediluvian giant who Gilgamesh is likely named after, and that's common after the flood to name giant names after giants really? before the flood yeah so like mm. gog for example is a giant after the flood magog is as well but he's there originally created before the flood by the parent god iapetus who poseidon replaces and so magog gog and albion were sons of iapetus and clito i didn't know that yeah so now you have a giant that is a king of a rook so he'd be measured according to josephus's standard at 21 inches on on the cubit he is almost 19 feet tall oh my god <laughs> and he is seven feet wide oh my god and even That's if you use two stories yeah and even if you use a common cubit he's going to be 16 feet tall and change and he's going to be that's um, at least six feet wide, about six feet wide. Yeah. And he is a dark haired oh giant. Oh my God. As opposed to red hair and blonde hair of the Raphaim, mm -hmm. of the Seraphim Watchers. And I talk a little bit about this in the new book. And he has pale skin as well. And uh, he seems to be part of the Cherubim. Nephilim and Raphaim, presuming they're both created both before and after the flood. And typically, the uh, dark-haired, human-faced cherubim would be depicted with dark hair as well. Oh, weird. Yeah. Well, yeah, what is it with these um, giants that are blonde hair, you were saying, blue eyes, or yep. red hair, hazel eyes? Yep. Is that... That's from the oh, seraphim, seraphim stock, different watcher angel. So there's four groups of watcher angels. Uh, there's archangels that Michael is from and Gabriel. Um, okay. And if you get into the book of Enoch, Uriel and Raphael and some other ones, um, you have the cherubim, uh, which have okay. four faces. Uh, you have the seraphim and the seraphim work in the altar before God. And they're in charge of government and religions and do edicts accordingly so in daniel 4 when you have uh these watchers coming from the throne of god to talk about governorship these are the seraphim angels as watchers and it's so the hebrew the word i ear for watcher so watcher does show up in the bible four times in the book of daniel which are the same as the sons of god order or the watchers um and that you have um uh, the seraphim who produce offspring that will look more like them, they'll look more like humans as they start to intermarry with humans after the flood mm. uh, and get, and that will become diluted, but they're still going to have those serpentine elongated skulls. And if you look at a Raphaim dynastic bloodline, that is the most obvious to what I'm talking about is pull up pictures or go see a King Tut museum. 
and oh, you're yeah. going to see Akhenaten, and mm -hmm. he has this either he's going to have a without the hat he has this huge elongated skull if he's got a hat on it's a huge elongated hat to cover the skull <laughs> yeah he's got these high cheekbones these large wraparound eyes and he's got these thin lips and this protruding chin and you look at that face and you're seeing a serpent mm -hmm. hybrid human face on there um that and of course the seraphim had dragon serpent faces and so they would take on that look to be sort of just like them. So, yeah, it seems to me you have the, those two separate strains of uh, human-like uh, ones. And then the Trubum also seemed to have, as I said, created those other kinds of angels as well. I mean, uh, Nephilim as well. Lower class, more of a warrior class as the uh, Tengu and the lion um, mm -hmm. men are like. And you could make that same case for the dog Nephilim as well. Wow. I wonder if those seraphims that are bloodline still today, are they in the government? I'm sure they have to be. Yeah, they're bloodlines. <laughs> so at least pull the strings and certainly the lower level bloodlines would be the ones that would be promoted to run government. Uh, you can look on the coat of arms of the royals and you're going to see things like a unicorn with a horn. Oh, that's an allegory for a cherubim really yeah interesting uh, i'm sure you'll yeah. you see a lot of lions it's, yeah it's an angelic being as well as a as a horse that the nephilim uh rode on into battle really? two different they types of cattle? yeah they existed at one time that's but they would have been a chimera type of creation right okay. yeah before the flood and after the flood to a certain degree there's accountings of that i cover that off in the second book as well so cool. yeah and you have lions right so that yep. goes back to a cherubim you have these eagles mm -hmm. america the has eagles yeah that goes back to the cherubim they're the ones who are thought to and also their uh cherubim are associated not only as a warrior class but also supplying the wisdom which is sort of the third eye and the allegory for the unicorn horn as the angelic being that uh -huh. supplies that knowledge supplies that knowledge from from the gods and that uh antichrist is described as the little horn and this unicorn uh in in the bible <laughs> oh, really yeah and the other face of course you have a human uh face and uh you also have a, a bull face so a lot of times you're going to see like the cherubs or the sphinxes that are showing a physical form uh in with their true sort of nature of their body as opposed to taking human legs they have, they have the ability to take any form they want uh, when they come, but when they want to look like a human, they can do it with an animal, one of those four animal heads or a human's head with legs or otherwise. So, uh, but you're going to see, you know, carobs uh, protecting temples uh, all around the Middle East. And they're going to either have a lion's face, a human's head, a bull's mm -hmm. head or an eagle's head. So, okay. it's, or a bird's head. So that's the imagery that you're seeing in that. Yeah. And yeah. So, and the cherubim are also the ones who pull God's chariot in the vision in Ezekiel and is described in Psalms. And the other one is a very similar being to the cherubim of the four watchers. And we didn't cover the fourth one. I forgot to do that. <laughs> while I'm on the chariot, <laughs> uh, you have 
these wheels within wheels. Yeah, in there, there's, there's a eyes. Yeah, and there's a cherub-like beings in there with all of these eyes. And they have four faces, but one of them is the face of a cherub. And then the other three are similar, and there's one face that's different. So that word doesn't go back to cherubim as to what these wheel angels are. But it means you have two words in Hebrew that mean wheel. One is Gilgal, as in uh, Gilgal Raphaim, the wheel of the giants or the wheel of the spirits at the foot of Mount Hermon on the Golan Heights. And the other word is Ophan. And so the wheels that we're in with wheels, when it's describing that, it's the Hebrew word Gilgal. Now, when it's describing the eyes and the beings within those wheels, it's Ophan. So, so they're like wheel angels, and the I am would be the male plural. What's interesting is the book of Enoch names the Ophanim as the fourth group of watchers. Oh. So biblically, we do. They just don't translate it directly out of Hebrew as Ophanim as they do with Cherubim, which is kind of silly in my books. Is like you translate Seraphim as Seraphim. Why wouldn't you, you know, translate Ophan as the Ophanim <laughs> in that case? It makes makes no sense to me. Yeah. Now, in the Greek mythology, the gods rode chariots, usually with white horses, but also a lot of times they have a white horse with a single horn, a unicorn. And that's again the occult using that allegory of a unicorn angelic being as because these are flying horses and they don't have wings they just have the ability to do what they do well maybe they have wings i don't know but i guess the cherubim <laughs> do but um but this is their sort of uh allegory of of mixing in the unicorn and that knowledge and that third eye and the layers and layers of allegories that they have because there's rebellious cherubim there's a rebellious seraphim mm. there's rebellious angels probably of every rank and order mm. that's interesting wow you know with the um israel war right now that's going on is that part you think of this end time i don't know story um that or not certain, really to a certain degree um i try to encourage people not to get ahead of um <clears throat> end time chronology and not to mm -hmm. just look at every event and create that as armageddon <laughs> that's coming yeah so in the signs that jesus provided for this fig tree generation or all mm -hmm. the events that he describes is going to happen um he talks about uh, the sorrows, which are translated in layman's terms as birth pangs. Mm -hmm. And they include the catastrophes of war, rumors of war, mm -hmm. pestilence, mm -hmm. famine, earthquakes, and then Luke adds in the surging of the seas. And these will get stronger throughout that generation. And that even at the time of the opening of the seals, which it will be 25% destruction of all humankind at that point. And that's right at the beginning of the last seven years. People running the world, the princes in Revelation 6, see the damage and they're actually are hiding in the earth in their 
fortresses or caves or whatever they've built for protection, um, which is a common thing that people of the bloodlines and occult really? societies do. They dig tunnels underneath their building. Wow. Yeah. So okay. um, they think it's the day of the Lord, but it's not. It's just the seal openings. And so because they okay. because the trumpets are 33 percent destruction. And the wrath bowls would be 100%, except that Jesus steps in. Otherwise, all flesh would be destroyed. Yeah. So if we are in the fig tree generation, I think we might be. We're going to see things that look like the start of the mm -hmm. war. So if you get to the war that happens mm -hmm. after the opening of the abyss, towards the midpoint of the last seven years, you get this great alliance that is going mm -hmm. to march on Israel. And so that's what people will always be sort of looking at. Does this lead to the Armageddon? Because this war will look like Armageddon, but still it won't be. Because right. it's in the trumpet judgment. And in this is the God war of Ezekiel 38 and 39. And it happens in the last days, as Ezekiel 38 talks about in that passage. And then in 39, after the war, when they're burying it, you'll have second exodus in the time of Jacob's trouble, which happens after the midpoint. So this is not the Revelation 20 war. This is two end time markers saying that it's in the last seven years. And that is the same war as... Joel 1 and 2 versus Joel 3, which Joel 3 is Armageddon. Um, because okay. it, it's a war that follows after Joel 1 and 2. And Joel 1 and 2 has the same descriptions of this chimera type of army mm. that's in Revelation 9. And Joel 1 and 2 says, this is the largest army that ever was and never will be again. So even the Armageddon army will be smaller. And because that happens in Joel 3. And then Armageddon doesn't come till Revelation 19, and part of the rolling out of the uh, bowl judgments in Reve Revelation 16 as well. But those are just the details that come in Revelation 19. And so you have in Revelation 9, after the abyss is open, and part of the three woes of the end time, you have this 200 million man army that's a chimera like army. And in the new book, I put the description of the of this army on one uh, side, and then right beside it, I give the description of the Joel one and two army, and show people that that's the same army. Interesting, but where is, I guess, the people of Israel as yes. a nation? Where do they stand in prophecy to today? I mean, yeah, so they're in as Ezekiel thirty eight talks about. Israel is back in the land of the covenant to a certain degree. That's the southern mm -hmm. kingdom. And so they're coming there to destroy them. Um, and in mm -hmm. Daniel 9, 27, it talks about this covenant that mm -hmm. is uh, provided and Israel will receive protection. They'll be able to start doing the sacrifices on a wing of the temple which Islam isn't going to prevent unless there's a universal religion that's going to uh, allow it. And you're going to have a world government of the 10 King empire to enforce it. And this army in the Ezekiel 38, this is a breakaway branch of those 10 Kings with the groups of nations. We can talk about who those nations are biblically in, in, in a minute. And so Israel is uh, attacked by this Gog army to destroy them. So when we look at where we are today, 
Um, you have birth pangs that are going to reflect that and they'll get stronger with that type of larger and larger and larger war that, that's going to come along. So they have to be in the Southern Kingdom in the covenant land, but more importantly, they have to be in control of Jerusalem. And so that happened in 1967. And because Jerusalem is the epicenter for end time prophecy. Okay. And Judah being in Jerusalem is part of that epicenter. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So if there is a timetable to start that last generation, mm -hmm. I would say it would be in 1967 when when Judeans took uh, Jerusalem back. Now we don't know how long that generation is. Right. I mean the Exodus that talks about 40 years like 40 mm -hmm. years in the wilderness. The book of Psalms says 70 years. Mm -hmm. And then all life was limited to 120 years in Genesis 6:3. So if that is the timetable 1967, well probably 40 years is beyond that and it's way beyond 1948 or 1947 when they actually declared their independence 70 years would maybe kind of work uh for 1947 but things would have to happen very very quickly based on that timetable or it would place you know put put in, into the 2030s for the last seven years that are coming and if it's 120 years it could be you know, a few decades down the road. It doesn't have to hit the full generation. Right. So things are still happening within that mm -hmm. fig tree generation. So we're going to mm -hmm. see more of these blow-ups and they're going to get stronger mm -hmm. and they're worse. But eventually you're going to see a similar alliance, at least from the Eastern part, that's going to be part of that Gog War that's going to come and try and destroy Israel from the face of the earth. So you have... Uh, like China? Uh, well, China will be backing it with the strings, but they don't show up till Armageddon. But what you have is Persia, which is Iraq and Iran. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And a few other countries. And mm -hmm. in ancient times, you had the dark-haired uh, Indo-Aryans, the giants settling into Persia, who produced the Achaemenids of the Persian Beast Empire. And they also settled in the Indus Valley. And that's why Old Persian is a very close language to Sanskrit. And they have the same... God names with slightly different transliterations. Mm -hmm. And so you would include India in on that as well. Really? And India buys all of their oil and energy mostly from Russia as part of this emerging alliance that's working with Iran and China. The leader of this war is Gog, chief uh, Gog of Magog, chief prince of Meshach. Now, Gog is a, as we talked about, is not in the table of nations. Magog is. Uh, and Gog was a giant. Mm -hmm. And uh, so Gog shows up and it's described, it defined both in the New Testament and the Old Testament of, of Gog as being an end time antichrist figure. So there's going to be multiple okay. antichrists. And this is the yeah. one antichrist will say he is the antichrist. So he can fake his credentials to be Jesus to come back and introduce his millennium and deceive everybody. And that's the uh, that's his counterfeit Armageddon, right? So he needs that. And so Meshach is the etymological root for the city of Moscow. Hmm. Okay. And the Indo-Aryans or Scythians that uh, are part of, you might be familiar with the Tartarian, you have to be careful 
before and after the flood, which part of the Tartarian empires, but it's the Scythian empires or Tartars, as the Cossacks were known in the Ukraine, that set up the original Kievan Tsar dynasty. And in about 1000 AD, you have Vladimir the Great expanding the Putyan and bloodline dynasty of Tsars into Moscow. And they're succeeded by the junior offshoot through an intermarriage in about 1600 by the Romanovs who are wiped off um, by, I think, the Europeans creating communism to destroy a rival oh. bloodline. Okay. Really? Yeah. So now you have Putin, whose name comes from his grandfather that comes out of nowhere in about 1850. There's no genealogical name beyond that. But what, what happened in the, in the Rurikid dynasties is that of, of the Ukraine and Kiev, but what happened is if they had children out of wedlock, they would not live in poverty, but they wouldn't be part of the royal inner group and they wouldn't get the full name. They would get part of the name. Okay. which is where Putin is thought to be come from. Now, as Putin's father moves to St. Petersburg in World War II, which is how he becomes born in Russia. So you have now somebody who believes, and this was in the Russian newspapers, I have an article on Putin as well, if people want it. Um, he believes that he is part of the Putyanin bloodline. Okay. And so he wants his home city back as part of that ancient bloodline and he's building that empire and so that's part of the gog and magog alliance it's the main proponent you have uh, tagarma which is thought to be turkey today and uh, they're part of nato but they're working more with iran and with russia now i expect they're going to split away from nato down the road my speculation and you have Germany, who also buys all of their energy, for the most part, from Russia. From Russia. And that's yep. going to come to play. And that's Gomer of that alliance. And so I think you're seeing five of those 10 toes, of mm. those 10 king empires of Daniel mm. II, start to show up. And it's not that they're against the new world order. They just want a larger role. Mm. Now... Is King of the North, is there any significance to that? Like King of the South, like towards the end time prophecy? Yeah, there is. I mean, if you, when you get into Daniel 11, which, which, which mm. is what you're referring to, mm. and about at verse 21, you start to see the rise of Antichrist in the first three and a half years, culminating with uh, the abomination at the midpoint. Um, and then what he does in his rule after that. And then Daniel 12, you see another version of the last three and a half years. But within that rise to power after negotiating the covenant, and he rises in the first three and a half years because Babylon and the Ten Kings are ruling, and it's the Ten Kings who hand their power over to Antichrist at the midpoint of the last seven years, as Revelation 17 talks about. And and Antichrist will also overthrow three and replace them with his own puppets um, <laughs> and then distribute their plunder. Uh, there's this massive army that's wiped out before him. And after that, and he takes credit for that, I think, and then he moves his armies into, as Daniel 11 says, into Jerusalem for the abomination. Who Who is the king of the north? Do we know? 
it's a different king in different sort of periods, right? Oh, so, okay. Yeah. So you could look at that, that it might be talking about the 10, you know, the king of the north as, as, as uh, Rome in the time of Jesus, right? Because mm -hmm. they're the beast empire. Um, it gets a little bit murky what happens after that. Is that after the Roman Empire falls with 10 kings? Or is that just talking about all of these 10 kings within the Roman Empire? Uh, but there's a transition to the end time at about verse 20 or 21 that clearly starts talking about this Antichrist figure. It's akin to how Daniel 8 is set up where it's talking about Alexander you know, defeating Persia, becoming a beast empire, and then having things split away, and then transitions into the end time Antichrist as an extension out of that. So once you see that break, you know, it goes from that period to as a dual prophecy to the end time. Hmm. And let me ask one more question, because I want to be respectful with your time. Um, I know the, the Bible Psalms, um, 37 i believe talks about the um meek inheriting the earth forever what does that mean is that literal yeah it is it's 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 the humankind and not the ruling class uh is going to inherit the earth and just as angels are sent to be ministers for those who will inherit the earth that's us because in the resurrection, we'll, we will be raised up like angels, even though we have human fathers, uh, through the resurrection and adopted by Jesus through a sacrifice. And that we'll also judge angels for their crimes against humanity in the future time as well. So we're the ones that are described in, in the book of Hebrews as inheriting eternity. We are the meek, the ones that will be resurrected. Versus the ones in, um, in in the book of Psalms, I'm trying to remember the chapter, I think it's uh, 21, uh, 8 through 10, and it talks about this seed that's going to be removed from humankind in the end time. Um, just as, yeah, and just as Isaiah 25 talks about this branch of the terrible ones, which connects back to giants, are going to be destroyed on a mountain in the end time. Um, and just as Daniel 2 and verse 43 in the King James Version Bible talks about the descendants or the seventh empire of the end time and the ten kings are going to mix their seed with humankind. Okay. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, so we're talking about this different seed in Psalms 21, this different seed in Daniel, and this branch of these terrible ones, which are the giants. And if people want to really read a pre, uh, freaky um, <laughs> prophecy, read Ezekiel 32, where it has the terrible ones, and that's the Hebrew word erit, or eritim would be the... Uh, the male plural on it and erit means terrible and i am being ones and these ones are the ones who are in the abyss prison the pit prison they're locked in the sides of the abyss and they're the ones who did terrible things while on the earth and these ones are talking to pharaoh who is another terrible one in that prophecy who will be going to the abyss prison as well when he is slain and so these are the terrible ones that um, 
are are the the noble elite and i cover this off again detail in detail in the new book and i have a document on ezekiel 32 as well so yeah connect all of that together in that language that most people never really say well what the heck are they really talking about with that kind of language yeah it's there for a reason mm, i can't wait for your new book so when is that supposed to come out well, it's already uh, to be printed. It's already in the digital version. Amazon um, will probably has it by now. Whether I don't know when they'll. I, I'm not saying they're, they've released it yet. Okay. So, um, what they are? They just posted it up this last week, and I'm scrambling on my website to catch up as well. Uh, they have a March 12th release date. What's going on? And there's a paper shortage. There is. Oh uh printer shortage and labor shortage <laughs> really but because it's already in digital format and it just gets automatically transferred into the kindle uh, they could release that sooner so i'm trying okay. to get up, up to speed whether or not that comes out a little bit sooner um and the publisher is also thinking that we had to use this date for Amazon because we, you know, we publish a lot of books or they do. And that if you miss the date, they punish you. <laughs> Amazon controls okay. over 50% of the market. So they had to do an extended date. So if I get my, if I, if the books get printed, I'll get mine sooner and I'll make them available. I would presume Amazon would make, that book available earlier if the books were available as well they're already taking pre-orders off of amazon and i'm wanting to get set up to take pre-orders myself i just didn't envision it would be another six months down the road yeah <laughs> but if the digital version comes out that would be great yeah and i would recommend in my books that people buy a digital version because uh, it's not that much money um, and you may want to keep the other one as you know on your shelf but you know, I have a digital version of my own book and I use Kindle so I can quickly search keywords and find things yeah. because there's a lot of information in my books. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait for it to come out. So hopefully it'll be out really soon. And the best way to get it, I mean, is it Amazon or through your website is the best way? You can do both. What I do on my website is is I sign I sell signed copies. So whether or not you live in Canada or the US, there's a page for that, and Hawaii's included okay. <laughs> on the US. Okay. Uh, and then there's an inter international page for the rest of the world, and so just different freight costs uh, going to each of those locations. So you can get a signed copy okay. from me, and also you can link over to the Kindle version and get it right there. There's just a Kindle icon, you just click on that. And that takes you to Amazon for that link. You can also link over to Amazon.com, Amazon.ca, and BarnesandNoble.com on the icon if you wanted to purchase directly from them. And their price will tend to be a little bit lower um, because of the freight costs of me shipping across borders and stuff. I live in Canada. Um, so lots of ways to get. If you want to support me, that's fine. If you want to buy from uh, an online bookstore or through uh, Barnes and Noble as a as a you know hard copy when it's out there, I'm fine with both. So uh, whatever's best for you, and um, 
I think that that's probably the easiest way to buy the book, but you can search yourself for other online bookstores if, if you want to buy it from them as well. You won't be able to get the, the Kindle version, but um, because that's Amazon's proprietary digital version, but okay but eventually they all end up on google and everything else so it doesn't take long <laughs> true <laughs> true and what's the best place for people to find you your website through my website as well or on facebook under gary wayne and oh, yeah? send me a message at messenger really okay. yeah and there's a group that i'll participate in it it's got my name on it gary wayne and the genesis six conspiracy i don't administer it i don't have time to i didn't create yeah. the I didn't create it because I knew I didn't have time, but I do uh, participate in it. I do post in it and I do answer questions there as well. So people want to get a hold of me. Those are the best places. And that brings us to the end of another enlightening episode of the Sensible Hippie podcast. I hope you enjoyed this deep dive into the world of giants, bloodlines, and end time prophecy with our esteemed guest, Gary Wayne. I'd like to extend my gratitude to Gary for sharing his invaluable insight and knowledge with us today. It's voices like his that continue to push the boundaries of our understanding of the mysteries in the Bible. Thank you, Gary. And if you found today's episode as thought-provoking as I did, please consider subscribing to the Sensible Hippie Podcast on your favorite podcast platform. And please give me an honest review so others can find this podcast as well. Mahalo for your support. And don't forget to check out Gary Wayne at Genesis6Conspiracy.com. That's Genesis, the number six, conspiracy.com. And you'll find the link in the show notes below. And as we part ways today, remember to keep asking questions, keep exploring, and above all, stay sensible in your pursuit of knowledge. Until the next time, stay sensible and curious. Take care. Bye. Responsibility It's hard to be 23 And don't know what's in front of me Sleep is for the dead Not looking for comfort I the thing you wreck And just be another Persistent in the wheels We'll do anything I feel Like I'm not growing up Sleep is for the dead Let go Pour me a glass I toss it back 